1: Hi, can I help you find something? Librarians specialize in helping you find what you were looking for, and sometimes what you didn't know you were looking for. Thank you for joining me as I talk to my guests about all things library, including the books inside them. I'm Julie Chavez, and this is Ask a Librarian. Today I'm interviewing Stephen Messer, who can best be explained, I think, by his alter ego and pen name, Zeno Alexander. After emerging from the shadows of the past, his history yet to be fully explained, Zeno spent years exploring the world's libraries before settling down in his lavish underground bunker where he regularly hosts exquisite dinner parties and tends to his collection of extinct plants. His friendship with the famous librarian, Lenora, has turned into a series of biographical works devoted to chronicling her adventures. And in setting up this episode with Stephen, I have learned one important fact about myself. If you want to jam me up, please use a pen name. I'll have no idea what to call you, and I'll feel so stressed about the whole thing, you'd think you were in the Witness Protection Program. But that fact aside... Here's my conversation with Stephen, also known as Zeno. Hello, Stephen. I'm so glad you're here today. Thanks for being with me.
0: Hello, Julie. I'm thrilled to be here. This is very exciting, and I'm looking forward to it.
1: Oh, it's so great. I am so happy to be speaking to you because I'm such a fan of your books, The Library of Ever specifically The Library of Ever and Rebel in the Library of Ever. And for obvious reasons, I like that it's set in a library, but they are just fantastic stories. So well done.
0: Thank you so much. That's really kind of you.
1: And I think we'll start as we'll just clue our readers into what we were just talking about before I clicked record. And that is that, I said readers, listeners is what I meant, but I was just telling you that These books are actually written by Zeno Alexander, which is your pen name. Yes. And tell me about how you decided to use a pen name for these books, because as I've confessed to you, and now the whole world should know that I have overthought this to a point that it really is like you're in the witness protection program and I am <laughs> protecting your identity. So tell me, about, tell me in your experience, how you decided that and what it's, what that does besides confusing other authors and podcast hosts. I'm sure there are other things that happen. Well, so
0: tell me about Zeno. Confusing everyone is a, is a good enough reason to do anything, but I really liked I like books where the author is sort of a character in the book. And I always wanted to write a book where there was a character and that character could appear in the book. And, and in Library of Ever, the conceit is that Zeno Alexander is Lenora's biographer. And so he's, he meets her and he decides he wants to write the story of her life. And that is where the Library of Ever books come from. They're written by Zeno Alexander. And the fun thing about that is that I get to play a role sometimes, which is a lot of fun. And I also get to introduce the character in the book. And that that allows me to write about certain things in certain ways, using sort of myself as a proxy for a conversation with Lenora, a conversation with the main character, which I think is something as a writer, I really do in my own head. i talk to my characters, I get to know them. And this was a chance to actually let that play out on the page. It was a real interesting experience and I I got to do some things I don't think I would have been able to do any other way. Now, it'd be spoilers to tell you exactly what they are, but if you've read the books, you you might get an idea of what I'm talking about.
1: Of course, yes, and I have read the books, so I know. And I will, of course, be encouraging everyone I know to read the books because they are so well done. And I do see what you're talking about. You get to be part of the story in a different way. And it really, it works very well. So I, I really, I'm so glad you did that because it does add a different
0: element to the way the books are written. Thank you. Yeah, it, it does. It, it definitely, uh, in terms of a, a sort of a writing prompt, it does give you a different way to interact with the, the text that you're writing. And, and that's very, that was very interesting. I learned a lot from it.
1: I bet. Well, and now we know that Julie Chavez will not be writing any books under pen names anytime
0: soon because it causes her (laughs) existential angst. (laughs) Who am I? I don't even know. But then again, you might have existential angst either way, so That's a good
1: point. Okay. And you say angst, is have I been pronouncing that
0: wrong my whole life? I I have no idea. I might be (laughs) wrong.
1: I love it. My sister and I have an ongoing discussion about words that we've been saying incorrectly for years and we'll hear them like on an audio book or something and call each other and say, did you know this was pronounced this way? But I mean, my best example is in the Harry Potter series when they came out. Of course, I called her Hermione for at least... (laughs) you know, five years. And then the movies came out and I thought, oh, okay. I see what's happening here.
0: If, if nothing else, every, every Hermione in the world is grateful that now everyone in the world knows exactly how to pronounce their name.
1: Amen. Just as every Alexa in the world is not happy,
0: I would um, imagine. I, I know an Alexa and I feel bad for her. Oh,
1: that has got to be the worst. I just... we have one at our house, but the kids have them in their rooms, thankfully, because sometimes I don't like her. She's not very helpful. And then sometimes she's exceedingly helpful. You just really never know. <laughs> okay. So let's talk about the Library of Ever. Where did the idea start for you? Have you always been a library person? Do you like to go to the library? Tell me about your your library experience.
0: It, you know, absolutely. I remember as a really young kid walking into a library and and seeing a certain book on the shelf. And it was a pivotal moment in my life. Just that that brief second where I walked in, I saw this, the cover of this book, and I was instantly fascinated Hmm. by it. And the idea that I could pick it up on my own and read it and take it home, it, it changed everything for me. And I've always loved libraries. They've always been a refuge to me. We moved a lot when I was a kid and one of the highlights of moving to a new place was going to the local library for the first time and seeing what they had and walking among the shelves and smelling the books and looking at all the activities and things you could do there and, and all the things I learned about and, and all the things I did at libraries that had nothing to do with books per se, like, a, you know, astronomy demonstrations with telescopes and learning to play chess and other kinds of clubs and things like that. Just, I don't know what I would have done without libraries. So, Mm. Right, the books are a love letter to libraries, which should be very obvious if you read it, and it, it was it was it was something that I wanted to do and that I'd always wanted to do and it finally i it all came together in the right way, and that's what happened.
1: I really enjoyed these books. I marked them up with my lady Elaine Fairchild <laughs> bookmarkers, so she 's peeking out of the book saying, "Look at this, toots, but I love that." you, there were so many little profound lines in your books. And I had a few when Lenora in the beginning, she says, but wouldn't it make more sense for me to work on things I already know about? Lenora asked, not at all. Why ever would you want to do that? You'd learn absolutely nothing. And there were some other lines that stood out to me just about libraries and librarians, but also to this idea of libraries existing not only for us to enjoy the books, but truly for edifying, world-broadening kind of perspectives. And when Lenora says at one point that the girl had questions, I helped her find answers. Maybe the answers will disturb her, but isn't it better for her to know the truth? I There were so many of those moments that I picked out in these books. They're so well-written. The plot's really well-paced. They're really tight. But you also have just really some some true insight in it that i loved that I loved reading what's your you know it is a love letter to libraries. What do you want people to walk away from the book and feel as as an author either feel or i guess see differently? Is there something that you wrote with that purpose or what was your purpose in mind when you were doing that
0: uh yes and and that's there's a, that, the answer to that question is, that's a really long answer. There's a lot of things that went into it. One of the, one of the interesting things for me about the book is how much everything that happens and everything that's done and said is almost a decision by Lenora. Uh, To me, she's so real and she's so vital that she almost tells the story herself for me. And she she decides what's going to happen if i if i don't know what's going to happen next i just i think about what what lenora would do in that situation what she would say in that situation and the fact that she has she's so energetic and she has a growth mindset and yes. she's unafraid of challenges these are all these are all really good things and one of the motivations i had for writing this character is that I wanted her to be the kind of person that I want to be. That kind of person I would like to be. And so I, I kind of look to her w- with admiration. And it's it's hard to put into words. I, re- I really care about what happens to her. I care about her as a person. And I, I'm grateful to her for helping me write these books.
1: Hmm. That makes sense to me. I can feel that in her. She's very, I think vital is the perfect word for her. And... I agree. I like that you pointed out that she is unafraid of challenge, because I don't know for you, but I'd like to think I'm unafraid of challenge. But usually my first response when challenged is, mm, I don't want to do that.
0: <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that's true for me as well. And it's just delightful having, having someone like that who is unafraid and who I can look to as an example. Even in real life, I could think, okay, Stephen or Uh, (laughs) Zeno. Yes. What would would Lenora do in this situation that you are facing right now in your life? And more often than not, it's the right answer. Like what the thing that Lenora would do is the thing that I should do too.
1: Wow, that's such, and I love thinking about that because did she come to you kind of fully formed
0: in your mind? Well, so... The character of Lenora comes from a few different places. Okay. And so I, I wouldn't say that there's, there's just any one thing that's an inspiration for Lenora. But one of the things that went into the creation of her as a character was uh, years ago, I met a a friend of my young cousin's, and she was eight years old at the time. My cousins were around nine or 10. They're a lot younger than me. Okay. And she was a friend of theirs. and. This eight-year-old girl was the most organized person I have ever met. (laughs) Far more organized than any adult I know. She was amazing, and she would would keep track of everything that was going on, uh, what everyone needed to be doing, what everyone should be doing, what information people would need to make decisions, and she would proactively inform you of all of those things. Like, I, I came back from a walk with a friend, and when I got back to the house where I was staying, Uh, this girl came out and and told me that my wife had gone to the grocery store and she'd be back in 30 minutes. (laughs) So when my wife got back, I said, okay, did you ask her to tell me that? And she said, no, she told me on her own volition. And and she would constantly do things like that. That would just astonish us with her wherewithal and her awareness and her just sense of how, how things should be proceeding. And just an amazing kid. And she was she was part of the she's part of the character, and there were other things too. But but yeah, a lot of it a lot of it was that sort of seeing someone in real life who, at the age of eight, was really far more organized than me, and who I could learn a lot from. And so, the character in the book is somewhat similar.
1: I can see that that there are definitely echoes there. It sounds like the girl you're describing was very assured of her own position in the world too. Kind of I hope that. So. Yeah, that, oh, well, naturally, I would be the one to inform Stephen that
0: his wife has gone to the store. Of course. Yes. Someone <laughs> no else was going to. <laughs> right.
1: I'll take care of this. I know what's happening here.
0: I would have been wandering around, wondering where my wife was. But <laughs> thanks to this eight-year-old, no problem. Just a hopeless
1: man, maybe tangled in the blinds somewhere or something. Exactly. I, mean,
0: I might have been wandering the desert.
1: <laughs> who knows what you would have gotten up to. No, I don't. It is nice to have those people in our lives, and... An eight-year-old would stand out that way. That's so interesting. Wow, I didn't think about that sort of person being an inspiration. But you're right about the, especially when we meet people who exhibit the, the qualities that we would like to have or the qualities that we would imagine would improve us or improve our lives. And being able to incorporate that into a character seems like it would be a gift for an author,
0: it, it was a gift from her to me, even mm-hmm. though she, of course, never knew. But I had to, so I di- I had to age up Lenora in the first book a little bit and make her 11 because I thought no one is going to believe an eight-year-old doing these things. Right. Uh, even, though, even though an eight-year-old was doing those things, I just thought it's too unbelievable. People will say eight-year-olds don't act like that. And so she has to be about 11. But the reality is that eight-year-olds do act like that. So...
1: Yeah. I know some eight-year-olds that act like that for sure. Mm -hmm. And we do have one in in particular who, when he was younger, he was in transitional kindergarten and he was helping me sort out the planets because I got a big package of planets to put on the walls, but they weren't labeled. And (laughs) he was assisting me in putting them out. And then the next year, so he was four going on five at the time. And then... a couple years later, one of the other kids said something about the planet. Oh, that planet's upside down. And I said, I'm going to have to check that with this other student who has now become the authority on all things (laughs) solar system. So I can believe that there would be an eight-year-old out there like that. But you're right. For some people, that would be
0: unbelievable. I guess so. And it reminds me of when uh, when I was little, probably in first grade, I really enjoyed school. And I also... Felt that maybe I should be doing a little bit more of the uh, teaching, and so, <laughs> put me in coach. I, yeah, I volunteered <laughs> to help my teacher with some of the stuff that she had to do, and she ended up having me make the math tests for the class. Which at that time you would do that on a carbon copy, so yes. you would trace it over, and it would yes. make a copy blow in the carbon. So I would go for I would go home, and I would take the material that she wanted put onto the carbon copy for the test. And I would make the test myself, and that would be the test the whole class would take. And I loved it. I loved it. I bet. That's amazing. Think of all the
1: power you had. Yeah.
0: I was, also, I, was, I was power mad, first grade.
1: <laughs> Which, of course, naturally leads to being an author.
0: Yeah, I must, yes.
1: <laughs> right? I'm going to make these worlds and bend them to my will. Yes. What, what year was that, if you don't mind my asking, that your teacher was having you create? Or-ish? Well, it
0: was, uh, it was the age of carbon copies, so I'll let the... Uh,
1: okay, we'll, we'll leave that. it there. But here's what I love also is the the change in teaching. Like I'm thinking about that being, yeah, that sounds pretty standard around that time, right? Oh, yeah, you take it home and take care of it. Yeah. <laughs> now it's, it's sort of like parenting in those years, right? Ah, we will yes. see you when the lights uh, come on a lot looser. <laughs> yes. yes. Oh, Oh. the days of yore.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I a power mad first grader. I think you should put that in your bio. I really like that.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. I, I, should, I, I, I think from our conversation, I want to write about a power mad first grader. And I also want to have a character who is a stand-in for Lady Elaine Fairchild.
1: Yes. Yes. Let's talk about that for a moment, because you mentioned that what stood out to you from the land of make-believe with Mr. Rogers was Purple Panda. Right on. And then when you researched it, the planet was actually discovered by Lady Elaine Fairchild. Yes. I didn't realize that until I saw that and sent it to
0: you. That That was was
1: amazing. What do you think stood out to you so much about Purple Panda?
0: Well, uh, the... The surreality of the character and the the chanting and the teleporting, it's truly, it was like a vision from another world. And I was absolutely fascinated by that. And there's a a science fiction element to it, which otherwise I don't think is present in Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Yes, right. And I was a huge sci-fi fan as a a little kid. And I, I have to think that Purple Panda had something to do with that.
1: Purple Panda appeared and showed you what you had been looking for. Yes. That's so fascinating. I love thinking about that. The things, especially as kids that come into our worlds and just in, not insinuate, but they just sort of incorporate themselves into our worldview and it's
0: so natural, right? Oh, well, that makes sense. I must have been three years old and I was just mesmerized and riveted and I can still remember that and I can still... And I drew, I've drawn out it my entire life, I guess.
1: Oh, I love it. I think, and I like that in the library of ever, it's interesting that you say you like sci-fi because it does, it has some of those elements to it for sure that I really enjoyed because I enjoy that as well. And I felt, I like how you incorporated it, but the story is, I wouldn't call the library of ever a science fiction book, but there are lots of different elements. There's fantasy, there's some exploration, there's a little sci-fi. I, I felt like you really put so many almost genres into it. It feels like the chapters are almost reminiscent of a library because they're different types. I, I think you did such a good job.
0: Thank you. That's that's what I was going for. So thank you for noticing that. Let's
1: yeah, enjoy. I you definitely achieved it. So I've Read both of them and I love Lenora. I'm always very cautious what I say, really, to anyone because I don't want to spoil anything. Because someone once spoiled a book for me and I still really haven't gotten over it. And that Mm -hmm. was probably about 10 years ago. I probably need to let it go. But (laughs) I won't say too much. But I do think that kids in that maybe eight, nine to even 14 or 15 would enjoy this book. And I mean, obviously I'm an adult and I loved it, but I think it really is, it just has so many elements to enjoy. But I think one of the strongest points is the way that you wrote the characters. And I love Malachi and Lenora and they just make for such a great team. And you really did also a nice job of just making it really, there are a lot of stakes in this book. And so I really was invested in what was going to happen to Lenora, and also I have to say that I love the place you started with the sort of negligent nanny who was only checking out a book to impress a friend. That that line made me laugh out loud, and I was only a few pages in. So you had me from the start. <laughs>
0: Thank
1: you. So you've written these books. You have also written other books. What's your favorite? What's your favorite kind of writing to do?
0: Well, the the type of writing I'm. I'm completely invested in is writing for middle graders. Mm-hmm. That's, that is an age that I I remember very well. I remember very well how, how I felt about things, how I reacted to things and the importance of, of books and stories to me. And there's a quality, there's an intensity of the reaction to stories that you have when you're younger like that, that to me, it can never be it'll never be that way again and that's okay sure but it's it's also it's it's an amazing time in your life and so to have the opportunity to write things for someone who's experiencing that that stage of their life to me that's the that's for me personally that's the something i'd rather be doing than anything else i'd rather be writing for that that age group and so, so that's what I do. I, that's what I. That's what I do. I write for middle graders, and I want my dream is to for for kids who read my books to be affected the, the same way that I was affected when I was three by Purple Panda. Yes, that they they see something good and they see something interesting and they see see something that informs them, that makes them curious about the world, it makes them want to approach things in, in a in a good way, I guess. And and if i can if i can make that happen with my work it's 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 a it's it's humbling and it, it just means it means everything to me so that's what i do hold
2: up
0: Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today.
1: I think that you are well suited to write to middle grade. And I think what would you, I mean, for, for listeners who aren't in that season of life, what ages do you consider middle grade or grades or in your mind, what are you picturing when you're writing?
0: I think that the, the standard answer to that is sort of ages eight to 12, Mm -hmm. but I think of it more as um, sort of pre puberty pre puberty okay, I'm watching that word, but before you you sort of that stage of life, so someone could be seven years old and they, and they could enjoy my books, hopefully I know that've I've done school visits with seven year olds who read them and enjoyed them, so I wouldn't sit here and say that you have to be eight to read middle grade, and I wouldn't say that you have to be twelve to stop reading middle grade because I, I think that the books can be read by older kids too. And I think the best children's writing should appeal to both kids and adults. Adults should enjoy reading the book too. And so that's something that I'm keeping in mind. This has to be enjoyable to read for for anyone. Yes, it is aimed at middle graders and and younger readers, but I'm hoping that adults will enjoy it also. And there's things in there that I expect adults to enjoy that I I think that kids will understand later. And that's true for the books I loved as a kid. There were things about them I didn't pick up on until I read them as an adult. And that's one of the cool things about revisiting those books. You you see those things clearly when you're older that you maybe only instinctively understood when you were younger. So I I guess I have a very expansive idea of exactly what middle grade can be. It can be for anyone, but it could also be sort of in that that pre-puberty 7 to twelve, seven to 13 age range.
1: I couldn't agree more with exactly what you're expressing. It is such... A magical time because kids can comprehend quite a bit more, but you're right. Some of the understanding they have is on an instinctual level as opposed to an intellectual one. So they're absorbing this writing and this information in a time that's so formative and then to carry it on. But I agree completely. I think middle grade can also be for adults because it is still profound and approachable and so readable. So I think you are perfectly suited for what you're doing. And I love that you write with that intent in mind, with your readers in mind and sort of seeing that gift of being present at that time in their lives. It's really, it comes through
0: in your writing for sure. Thank you. And I I think it's in the uh, acknowledgements to C.S. Lewis's The line, the Witch, in the Wardrobe, he says something like, he's addressing it to the girl he's writing it to. I think her name is Lucy, just like the character in the book. And he says, I started writing this for you when you were interested in fairy tales, but it's taken me so long that now you're too old for fairy tales. But I'm still writing this for you because when you're an adult, you're going to realize that you're not too old for fairy tales and you're going to take this book off the shelf and enjoy it. And that is so moving.
1: Oh, that gives me goosebumps. I just want to weep right here. Yes. Oh, beautiful. That could not be more accurate. It's so true. You're never, I tell the kids that all the time. You don't outgrow these stories. And we have a lot of kids who clamor to get to the next level, right? They want to read chapter books. They want to move on. But I'm always telling them that some of the simplest stories are the ones that will stay with
0: you forever. Absolutely. I, I loved Good Night Moon when I was a little kid, and I love Good Night Moon now. Yes. Um, and I just I see things different things when I read it now, but I still love it just as much.
1: What a gift. I love being a book lover. I think. I do. <laughs> I think <too>. <laughs> right? It's true. I think there's something so special. And you know, we grow, but the books stay the same. And there's a tremendous comfort in that. And then also just being able to see them from different perspectives. Like for me, when I read Good Night Moon now, I do have moments where I'm like, why is that a bunny in the chair? And what's happening here? Right? It's, it's yeah. sort
0: of a crazy book. It really is. And there's a lot <laughs> later on in, in my life, I read more about how Good Night Moon was composed by Margaret Weiss Brown and by the illustrator whose, whose name I'm blanking on, which is very embarrassing. But the, I'll have to look it up too. Don't worry, you're not alone. There was a lot of thought that went into exactly how to portray everything, to present everything. A, a tremendous amount of, of knowledge and experience went into every aspect of that book and it's fascinating to read about.
1: I need to go back and do a little more study about Margaret Wise Brown. I know she was a tremendous talent and I think we have so many early picture books in that age that... We forget we're so groundbreaking, and you're right, intentionally done. So to look back at that, because I think the art of especially picture books has come so far, and the way that they're made, but seeing some of those early efforts, I mean, the fact that Goodnight Moon is still around,
0: it's just, yeah. it really is miraculous. And Clement Hurd is the illustrator, by the way. Oh,
1: thank you. It's
0: interesting because she had a very prolific career and long career with many, many books published before Goodnight Moon came along. She published it somewhat later in her, her career. But that's <laughs> the one we remember. And, it, and sort of everything, that in Runway Bunny. But th- that's the, that, all that wealth of experience went into this book, into Good Night Moon. And it was actually somewhat controversial. Some people did not like it. They thought it was inappropriate for kids, which is sometimes a good sign. Yes, it is. Indeed. In that, in that case, it was definitely a good sign.
1: That is really fascinating. And I like how you're talking about how it happened later in her career, because as you were saying earlier, that Lenora is someone who's not afraid of challenge. I tend to be a little bit of a perfectionist. And so I think I'm getting better at that. I'm working on my growth mindset, just like Lenora. Mm -hmm. But I think for a number of years, I didn't try things that I didn't know I would be good at, right? I wanted to make sure that I was going to succeed first time out of the gate, which... Is a horrible way to live your life. I do not recommend it. But I think now, seeing as I'm getting to dip my toe into writing, I get to see that so much of it is you learn as you go. And that these things that we think of as being created have such a history, not only in their creation, but in the creator's life up to that point. All of these things that prepare you to write this book at this time or whatever the work is that you're doing.
0: And, and all of the mistakes you've made, all of the bad writing that you've done, it's it's all important because it, it gets you to that place you wanna be. And so you have to do that. You have to do that. You have to make those mistakes and you have to. And that's something that I've struggled with too, in my life, being able to, to say to myself, it's okay to fail and learn from it and do better the next time. In fact, you have to, that's the only way to really get better at something. And so again, this is I'm, I'm trying to model the behavior that I want to see my own life through Lenora. So yes, I,
1: I think I will be doing the same thing because I will be thinking about that. Definitely just approaching challenges. And you're right. I think we have such a narrow view of what mistakes or failure look like, and it can be limiting when really it is the only way forward.
0: And that is, yeah, that's true. And it's, it's one of the things that early drafts of uh, the Library of Ever. I was making a yeah. mistake. I wasn't showing Lenora failing. And mm. I realized it was important to show her fail and to show her reaction to failure. And so in subsequent drafts, I wrote that into the book. She, sometimes she messes up. She doesn't always win. She makes mistakes, but she keeps going and she doesn't let anything stop her. And that's, so as the, as the book sort of matured and as I went through draft after draft, I worked in more of the Lenora messes up. Uh, that wasn't present in the first
1: draft. That's so interesting that when you went to write it though that that didn't happen naturally, right? That your first your first draft she's she's winning, perpetually winning. So I think that that's really an interesting part of the process where even in our minds sometimes we are writing this sort of false narrative of oh, this is just going to be win after win, but mm-hmm. that's not real life and and also too it doesn't make for a very interesting book, surprisingly. No. <laughs>
0: No, it doesn't. There was the, the heart of the book just wasn't there. It wasn't there until later. And that's, that's the way it always goes. There's nothing wrong with that. But when I started doing it, I thought, Oh, Oh yes. You can tell it feels right. And the words are just flying from your fingers to the screen. And that's when you know, you've got it.
1: Oh, that's a great feeling as opposed to the search and destroy typing method that, mm. that is just slogging through it. Right.
0: If I'm sitting there writing and it's not coming to me and I'm struggling and it just doesn't feel right and I can't make the sentences, I know that the worst thing I could do is to sit there and keep doing that. I have to get up, go find something else to do, something boring or my mind can drift. And I'll solve the problem if I go away and just let it kind of work through itself in my mind. But I won't solve the problem if I sit there getting frustrated and trying to force it. So I go away, I do something pleasantly boring. And then when I come back, I'm ready to go.
1: Is that something you learned over time?
0: Yes. When I was first, I made various attempts at figuring out how to have a writing life. And one of those, one of those involved thinking that if writing is a full-time job, then you should do it eight hours a day. Like you do at a full-time job. So I decided I was going to do that. And I didn't even make it through the first day. (laughs) Not even close. And, so, you know, I realize, okay, I can check that one off. That's not how I'm going to get anything done. And so you eventually, you have to try all those things, fail at them, and then you finally land on the rituals and the approach that work for you personally. And then you just have to remember them and and think <laughs> them and, and keep using them.
1: That's right. Post up some pictures of you doing those things to remind you.
0: Right, yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what are your favorite pleasantly boring tasks to, when you're, if you're, it's not flowing, what is your first go- to? What do you go do?
0: Well, I'm a big fan of like uh, saunas and hot springs,
2: oh and, yeah,
0: and things like that. And so I find that type of environment very relaxing so that's one thing I can do, and I, I usually read while I'm doing that, and it's it's you, anything that's that is routine and't re- that you can enjoy without it requiring your full attention is a recipe for inspiration and creativity that's why we. When we think of great ideas, we think of them when we're in the shower, or when we're driving, or something like that—something sort of monotonous that we can just do by instinct and letting our minds drift. That's that's where the creativity is going to happen. Yes, we is- have to be prepared for it to happen at those times.
1: And how do you record that? If you do, you have a—I mean, not a system, but do you have a way that if something comes to you, do you write it down? Do you put it in your my, your my wife mobile device?
0: Me. My wife bought me a waterproof notepad and pen so that I can make notes in the shower or in the bathtub or anywhere. That is genius. There's a waterproof notepad and pen? There I is.
1: I had no idea such a thing existed.
0: Yeah, my, my wife has a lot of great ideas when it, she, when it comes to She's a writer, too, and she gets it.
1: Wow. That is a very sweet gift. Way to go, wife.
0: Oh, tell her you said so.
1: <laughs> yes, I'm impressed. That sounds like true, like sharper image kind of, or like the, I'm thinking of the catalog on airplanes.
0: <laughs> I oh, can't yeah. remember what it's called. Well, they're, yeah, they're, it's, they have, I think, non-memorable titles. Yes. On, but oh,
1: It's Sky Mall. That's what it oh, is. Oh yeah, right. Yes. Sky Mall. The Sky Mall catalog. I could see that being oh, yeah. something in there, right? So All that that's stuff great. It's
0: great on an airplane somehow.
1: Yes. Does your wife write middle grade as well, or does she write something else?
0: She's a playwright. Oh. She's currently writing a YA.
1: Oh, okay. Ooh, exciting. It is exciting. That's really fun that you get to share that side of your creative lives.
0: We do. I, I don't think I would... We wouldn't be talking if, if I hadn't met her. Mm. She, she's a big reason why I've done what I've done.
1: Well, you can thank her for that too. The Waterproof Notepad and also for helping you become a writer because your books are... They're just treasures. And I love... Reading about libraries and Catherine Patterson, who wrote *Bridge to Terabithia*, she spoke once about about the most question or the most asked question she got about *Bridge to Terabithia* or about her writing, and it was, "Is it true? Is your story true?" And her response was, "Even though it was fiction, was I hope so? I tried very hard to make it so."
0: Oh yes, I mean, I to me my everything in in my books is true too. Yes. Uh, In the library of ever books, that's all true. It's all real in in the library of ever. You might remember towards the end, there's a passage where Lenora meets a girl who, uh, she's sort of been forgotten by history. She's sort of been lost in time. Yes. To me, like she really existed and she had a life. And even though no one remembers her and no one remembers where she comes from or any of those things, it was real. It was Mm -hmm. real even though we don't know about it. And so the the characters in in, in books like The Library of Ever, I I try to make them real too. Like even though it doesn't map to anything in your personal experience, it's still real.
1: Yes. And, you know, I think middle grade, like we were talking about that, that time of your life, you are perfectly positioned to understand that complexity, like we were saying, on an instinctual level. Because as adults, we tamp all that down in these silly ways. And we kind of forget, but what you're saying is exactly true. It is real. It's true. So I love that you have an appreciation for that and that you write for that age, too. Thank you. So the time has come for you to ask me a question since this is Ask a Librarian. So (laughs) I was wondering, do you have a question for me?
0: Yes. So when I was writing the Library of Ever books... One of the things I did to find inspiration for stories I could tell within that context was to visit local libraries and just just walk around and see what was there and what were people doing. What mm-hmm. uh, are the things that left out were interesting. So I just like walk around the library just and look at things. And so many of the of the adventures that Lenora have has in the book come from that experience, like walking around a library, a library not far from my house. I, while I was there, I saw a a big globe and that became the giant moon sized globe in the book.
2: And then I saw
0: a little, I saw a diorama, a little Egyptian diorama at the library and that became the full sized recreation of ancient Egypt as a gigantic diorama in the, in the library of ever. And so I, I just, I found things that I saw and they turned into stories in the books and they're really from libraries. So my question for you is what is something in your library that could serve as the the foundation of, of an adventure for lenora. Oh, what a great question. Because, oh my so goodness. Your mind because anything can anything can can be a jumping off point for this.
1: Okay. I think the first thing that comes to mind is I have a collection of tiny things in the library. Yeah. And it started out with my sister giving me a set of tiny colored pencils. Aha. And then now I'll have to send you a picture of it. It has I I was have,
0: about to ask for a picture.
1: Yes, I and I'll post it so everyone can see. It's Thank I have you. a tiny set of watercolor paints. There's a tiny paper crane. There are some things that have been made for me. One of my students made a tiny copy of my upcoming memoir, which is titled The Anxiety Library, and put it in there, there's a tiny plant. So I almost envision Lenora being tiny among those things, maybe, or something along those lines.
0: But I think it would have to do with the tiny collection. That is perfect. And I'm all my mind is already churning about how I could turn this into an adventure for Lenore. Oh. the tiny art supplies and the tiny origami is even better that that would be it that would be a, that's a great place to take that I, I, I will try to use that at some point
1: Ooh, but, uh, I'm, I'm so excited yeah I'll send you a picture and they all live in a little case together now oh, so yes. there's a yes there's a tiny and I'm envisioning it should have tiny stairs between the levels though so that a tiny person could go in there. Yes. Oh, I'm so excited. I use the word tiny all the time with my friends.
0: (laughs) My mind is working now. And it just goes to show for anyone, anything you see during the day, no matter how used you are to seeing it or you overlook it because you see it all the time or it seems unimportant or benign, anything can be the jumping off point for a great story. And if if you work at seeing the world like that, you can come up with all kinds of amazing things.
1: Oh, that is a great piece of advice for writers that are all ages and also just dreamers and storytellers. I love, I love that advice. That's a perfect, perfect note to end on. Well, Stephen, this has been a pleasure. I've really enjoyed our conversation and thanks for talking to me today.
0: Thank you so much for having me. This is a lot of fun. I've been listening to the podcast. I uh, really enjoy it. So I'm looking forward to hearing this.
1: Oh, thank you. Yes, I can't wait for this one to be shared with my friends. And I think you've shared a lot of wisdom, which you do in your books, but it's been really great to hear it straight from you. So I hope we'll get to talk again
0: soon. I hope so too. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Ask a Librarian. As always, it's my joy to share and learn with you. You can follow me on Instagram at juliewriteswords Words. Or you can go to my website, JulieWritesWords.com. There you'll find the show notes, including all the books mentioned in the episode. See you in the stacks next week. And until then, friends, never go anywhere without a book.
2: Hold up. What was that?